Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to the Business Builder Show, where we feature champions in their respective industries from all over the planet. Our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to talk about why having a tenant-only brokerage is your ultimate commercial real estate negotiating strategy. And we're going to find out how to do that with Jonathan Kaiser. Now, Jonathan is the founder of Kaiser, one of the most innovative and trustworthy technology-enabled occupier services commercial real estate firms in the country. Along with their international partners, he's got over 560 people worldwide. Jonathan's a number one uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling author for his book, called You Don't Have to Be Ruthless to Win. And he was named the Commercial Real Estate Disruptor by USA Today. He's been named a top social capital CEO by the International Business Times, is a highly sought after keynote speaker, a thought leader who's been featured in over 150 articles, publications, and podcasts, including this one. And during the pandemic, he was recognized as one of the 20 virtual keynote speakers in the USA. As an entrepreneur himself, Jonathan has built Kaiser into an eight-figure firm recently named as one of the top 50 most trustworthy companies in America by Silicon Review. Jonathan, it's fantastic to have you here, sir. Thank you for having me on. Now, I know, but your listeners don't quite yet know who you serve. So our we're, we're a unique commercial real estate firm, Bill. Our, our focus is helping the user or the tenant or the occupier, right? If you think about traditional commercial real estate firms, they primarily represent landlords, developers, real estate investors, right? And those people control the entire supply chain. So they control the brokers, they control the architects, they control the contractors, they control the furniture people, they control the carpet people, et cetera. And as a result, the industry tends to be very much stacked against the tenant. So if you're a tenant, whether you own or lease is not the point. It's are you occupying space to help with your business or are you in the business of being an investor of real estate? Those are two very different things, right? And so we only represent the user or the occupier. And what that enables us to do is we never have to worry about conflicts of interest. What's crazy about commercial real estate is it's one of the last remaining industries where conflict of interest is just somehow ignored, allowed. You can't even hire a law firm without doing a conflict check. And there's, look at the CPA industry, right? There's people in jail from conflict of interest. And yet, then you get to commercial real estate, it's the Wild West, and oh, but he's a good guy, and he's a nice golfer, and he, is that really the way to be selecting your real estate provider? And then on top of that, real estate for most companies is the second or third largest expense. And it's the least flexible because you can lay off people, but you aren't laying off a lease. And over half of corporate bankruptcies involve breaking some kind of lease arrangement. So our opinion is this stuff is material, this stuff matters, and Corporate America, mid-market companies need to have an advocate that's helping them think more strategically about their real estate, where they should be, how they should operate. It affects everything. It affects culture. It affects where they're located. 
it affects. Are they going to be doing hybrid? Are they going to be doing remote? What is that going to look like? And it's such a big cost and risk that what we spend our time doing is helping companies figure out a real estate plan and then execute upon that plan. And we have four main areas of focus, office space, industrial or manufacturing or warehousing space, healthcare space, right? Hospitals, clinics, rehab, that kind of thing. And then retail, restaurants, big box stuff, et cetera. So those are the four specialty areas that we do. And like you mentioned in the bio, we do this all over the world. So a lot of our, most of our business is domestic. So most of it is in the, is in the U.S. We do a lot in Canada. We do a lot in Mexico. And then we have work that we're performing through our partners across the globe as well. But the majority, the vast majority of what we do is in uh, the mainland U.S. And the majority of the time, Bill, it's we'll come in and we'll do a free assessment, audit, real estate review, whatever of the current portfolio. So let's say that a company has 20 locations. We'll come in, we'll do a deep dive on all their leases, help them figure out where they were poorly negotiated, where they could be improved, help them figure out where there's cost savings opportunities, and then help them go to market and make sure that they have someone that's on their side. Because the problem with real estate negotiations, Bill, at its core, when it's conflicted, is you have a fiduciary obligation to, if you're a broker, you have a fiduciary obligation to your landlord client because you have a contract in place that says, I'm going to represent your property. I'm going to find you tenants for it. That creates a fiduciary obligation. So if you have a fiduciary obligation, it's the same thing as you have with your attorney that requires information disclosure. So let's say that you're a tenant and you're trying to work with a traditional firm and that traditional firm represents landlords by legal requirement, they have to disclose your true intentions if, if they're asked by those landlords, which then eliminates the whole point of negotiations, like playing poker with your cards up. And then you wonder why tenants get taken advantage of so much. You wonder why most leases we estimate are 20 to 30% over in cost where they should be and significantly over risked than they should be. All of that is because you have an industry that's stacked against the tenant. So we believe very strongly that if you're a tenant, if you're an occupier, you need to have an advocate that's just on your side that is not just trying to use you to get more listing work from these big developers and owners and landlords. And it's going to fight for you, regardless of whether you're doing a 5,000 square foot sales office in Florida, or you're doing a 500 million square foot uh, facility in China for manufacturing, whatever the case may be, you need to have an advocate that's on your side and that's advocating for you. And so that's what we do as a firm. Fantastic. Very unique. I've definitely seen the industry, your industry, operate the same way all over the planet. It's really incredible when you said it that way. I'm thinking maybe to help our listeners understand the whole picture, could you walk us through a case study? So here's, you can even name the name if you want, but here's the firm. Here's how they came to us. Here's what they asked us to do. Here's what we did. Here's our audit work. Just give us something that's, I think, Jonathan, fairly complicated one because it would, it would introduce some of the various services that you guys yeah, perform for, sure. for people. Okay. For sure. Maybe I'll give you a couple because I'll give you another one that I think helps people understand how we negotiate differently. And then I'll give one 
that's more of a portfolio approach. So we had a client, we put them in their headquarter building. Um, it was a four-story building. I got the building named after them. They only occupied one floor, but I got the building named after them. And it was the maximum building signage that was allowed uh, per city code. So they were very happy and uh, got them a good deal. And then two or three years later, the CEO calls me up and they were growing and the market was hot. And he said, Jonathan, we need more space. The floor right beneath us just became available. Would you call the owner and get us a good deal on that space? And I said, absolutely not. The worst possible thing I could do is call your owner and tell him that you want that space. You're already in the building. You're already on an existing lease. He's going to look at you as a captive tenant and he's going to take you to the cleaners. I said, but here's the deal. I know your owner. I know the brokers that he's buddies with. And I know the buildings that those broker buddies represent. I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, what is one thing about your facility that's less than optimum? That's maybe something that you, if you could wave a magic wand, you could change. Something that you that the landlord cannot change that's a problem for you that I can inflate in my negotiations so that they can make up for it by giving you a better financial deal. I said, things like location of building are a good one because it's hard to move a building, type of building. We picked signage. So we had already negotiated the maximum signage for this building that could be done. Across the street, we could go across the street, lease a floor over there, get another building sign. Now we can look twice as big in the community and we could throw marketing dollars at it. So I went back to the owner and I said, all right, Mr. Landlord. I said, we appreciate it because he was blowing my phone up. He heard about us touring in the marketplace. Owner's blowing my phone up. Jonathan, don't you realize we have a space right below you? It's perfect. Call me. And I called him back and I said, look, we get that you have that floor. Is it convenient? Yes. Could it potentially work for our operation? Yes. I said, but let me ask you a question. And again, Bill, the key here is questions, not statements. So let me ask you a question. Why would we take more space in your property when we've already maxed out the signage available? And you remember how important signage was to us, right? Yes. When I can go across the street, lease a floor over there and get another building sign, just silence, right? Finally, Jonathan, what do we got to do to get you interested in the ground floor below you? And so that's an example of, it's a microcosm of everywhere we go, we're saying the tenants are used to being taken advantage of. They're used to the industry working against them. And the industry's constantly playing games, constantly saying things like, you don't hurry up and sign this lease, I got 14 people behind you and they're willing to pay twice as much, but I'm trying to be a nice guy and I'm giving you the space. So from our perspective, the reason I was able to get a 25% below market deal on that expansion downstairs and the reason we got a termination option, which when the market changed, saved their ass, was because we took the time to put a strategy in place that says, how do we maximize your negotiating leverage to your benefit? Better terms, better out, all those kinds of things. So Take that and then imagine extrapolating that across a portfolio, right? So take that sort of micro because real estate, it's very micro in the negotiations. You could have a monster global strategy and have 10,000 facilities, 
but you still have to negotiate with a landlord that has a space that you're leasing, right? And imagine better strategies, unconflicted strategies at the micro level that saves you cost, reduces your risk, and then all of that flows up into overall cost savings. That's the microcosm. And then when we come, here's another example, as we took over a, a company that had 100 facilities and they were, they thought they were doing a good job with them. They had a professional firm managing them. It was one of the big boys. They thought they were getting taken care of. And as we went and went through all of the various leases, what we realized was that they had been dramatically underserved, right? One, they were leasing a lot more space than they needed. Two, the terms were not favorable terms. And three, the willingness and ability of the of the team to be fluid was just, it, it wasn't functioning properly because of the fact that it, that it just, they didn't have a system in place. Everything was reactive. It was, they didn't even know where their leases were. So we came in, we, we did abstracts of all of their leases. We set them up with an electronic digital system that tracks all the dates, that has all the critical information in it, has all the prompts, has all the reminders. We set standards for what leases needed to have to protect them going forward. We renegotiated half the leases in the portfolio, dropped their occupancy costs by 33% across their portfolio. And they looked at us like we were miracle workers, but it wasn't that we were miracle workers. We just were, we just took the time to say, how do we maximize your real estate spend? And how do you, how do we make sure, because that money, man, it drops straight to the bottom line, right? Anything I can save you on the real estate spend, that's found money. And so we gave them a, a nice chunk of change back and de-risked their portfolio and helped them really have a, a more strategic real estate approach going forward. That's what they were lacking. They didn't have any sort of, there was, oh, we have this new business unit that needs something in China, go get a space. They didn't have a framework. They didn't have a philosophy. They didn't have an operating model for how they should do that in a more effective way going forward. So that's really where we spend our time doing it. And that's where we add a lot of value. And it's just not something that traditional firms do, right? It's just, they're very transaction driven. They're just trying to get deals done, get their commissions and move on versus really looking at how do we be a strategic partner that adds significant value. So Jonathan, uh, I'm thinking about the your uh, industry and how there's, if you will, some common business practices like Here's the commission, and then the listing agent has their piece of it, and the selling agent has their piece of it. Do you are you constrained, Jonathan, by that industry constraint, or do you operate as a consultant to people? No, we still participate in the real estate commissions available because it'd be silly for the companies to waste them, right? Because if if we don't extract them as representatives on their behalf, then the other side will take the whole fee. So you might as well get the value for that and extract the fees. Sometimes some of our services are non-transactional, right? Project right. management, where we're helping right. somebody or lease administration or capital markets. So some of them are different, but for the most part, we try to capture as much of the traditional fees available in the marketplace and give more service for that. We try to do three to four times the amount of work per client that our competitor does, which sounds silly to some people, but to me, it's like, it's the ultimate way to get to serve and keep a client, right? You go above and beyond for them. You're not going to lose them. You're going to add so much value. No one's even 
no one's even going to want to try to compete with you half the time because they don't want to have to do the work that you're willing to do. I think it's the ultimate job security. And if we're really about helping people, our whole philosophy is about serving and helping and giving back and making sure that we're delivering value to our community. If we're really doing that, then that's a natural part of that too, right? You want to make sure that you're over delivering for your clients. No doubt about it. And I can see why you, your relationships would be very sticky because mm -hmm. of the service you're giving, yes. Now, how about, how about your competition? Do you have any competition directly or people that claim to compete? Or how does the competitive landscape look in the tenant, the tenant side of the industry? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's a good question. Most of our competitors are the traditional firms. So it's that's who we compete with day in and day out because that's the established lay of the land. And a lot of companies, to be honest, Bill, they don't even realize that we exist. They don't realize that we're that there's an alternative option. Sometimes when I do keynotes, <laughs> I'll start with, okay, everybody in the room, picture the person that they trust the most in the world, right? Everybody got that person in their minds? All right, now raise your hand if that's your commercial real estate broker, right? Oh, everybody cracks up, right? Because it's, it's laughable. But that's our goal. Our goal is we want to be that trusted person where you really know that we have your back and really we're, we're there for you. So, you know, the, when people experience us, the most common thing we hear, Bill, is, man, I wish I'd known you guys sooner. Man, I wish I'd known that you even existed, right? So part of it is spreading the awareness of, wow, there is a different service available. You can really trust your commercial real estate broker. They're, they can be truly on your side. They can be not just out for the commission, but wanting to make sure that you meet your goals and objectives. All of those things are possible. And so that's really where we spend our time helping our clients. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I think you nailed all that. All those questions I had about your services and how you deliver and how you differentiate from your competition. Let's talk about your company, how you built your business. Sure. So can you take us along, go back on memory lane and walk us through you Jonathan Kaiser, and then how you came up with the idea to have your own firm and hold that all way, hold that all unfolded. Sure, no, I'd be happy to. So I was, I have a very unique upbringing. I was actually raised a Christian missionary kid in Papua New Guinea, and I was taught by my parents to love and serve. And when we came back from overseas when I was eleven, I had this sort of rude awakening that we were poor, and I had no sense of rich or poor when I was overseas, because everybody was poor. If anything, we were better off because we had an actual house. And it stuck with me, right? At an early age, I decided I don't like this being poor stuff. I want the stuff that other people have. I, I want to be rich. And I associated the sort of love and serve philosophy that my parents had raised me with being broke. So oh. I said, well, I don't want to do that. And I stumbled into commercial real estate. I didn't plan on doing it, but I stumbled into it. And as I got into it, I realized pretty quickly, wow, this really is a cutthroat, take no prisoners, dog eat dog kind of industry. But I didn't know a different way. And so I became cutthroat and ruthless because I thought that was the way, what it took to get ahead. And again, I rejected my parents' philosophy because I figured it didn't work and I wanted the stuff. And But I felt trapped, right? Because I didn't know a different way. And then 20 some years ago, I went to a conference and a speaker gets up and he starts having a different conversation, a conversation about succeeding by 
helping other people and investing in them and going above and beyond for them and trying to solve their problems and worrying about yourself last. And I was just fascinated. It's literally sounded like my parents, but here's a successful guy up here talking about it. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, how does this, how does that work? Is that one, is that really true? Or is that just some shtick that you say to sound cool? And then when he, re, he promised me it was true, he, I said, how does it work? And he said, it's like the difference between hunting and farming. He said, right now, Jonathan, you're hunting. You're going out, you're trying to get a piece of business, close it, and then go do it all over again. I'm talking more about farming, where you plant seeds, water them, nurture them, and those seeds are relationships. And over time, they start to bear fruit. He goes, eventually, you'll have so much business, you won't know what to do with it. And I go, wow, that's a cool concept. I love that. And I loved the, what I loved most about it was I loved the idea that, man, maybe I didn't have to be ruthless. Maybe I could just go help people and still get rich. That sounds pretty cool. Long story short, decided to reinvent myself through my old business plan away and just started helping everybody that I could in the marketplace. People thought I was nuts, thought I hit my head. They, they, they started calling me the free community concierge. And, and I took it as a compliment. And so I became the freak. And everybody say, what do you do? I'm a, I'm, I'm a commercial real estate broker, but I'm really a free community concierge. How can I help you? And, and I just helped everybody with anything they needed. Kids needed internships, helping people get new jobs, whatever it was that they needed. I was trying to help them. And over time, it started to pay off. Right? I had helped enough people over the first four or five years that I started to get referrals of people saying, hey, thanks for taking care of Blake. Would you be willing to help me with your real estate, with our real estate lease? And so I started to get these referrals without having to, to sell. And that gave me more to help other people with. And so here I am at my old firm. And when I first started doing this new philosophy, everybody thought I was nuts. Then it became like where I was a laughing stock. But then when I started to have success, then all of a sudden it became really hard for me to manage there because people weren't exactly rooting for my success as I started to be the top producer, right? Not after being naysayers for as long as they'd been. So I was frustrated and I went to Sedona where everybody goes to have an epiphany and I, I'm sitting in the hot tub and I'm staring at the mountains and I have this realization, this sort of thought. It's, wow, what if, what if you could teach other people, Jonathan, to do what you've learned on this selfless service philosophy? And I was like, yeah, I guess I could do that. And then I was like, what if you had a firm where all everybody did was that? Now, my thought was, I don't want anything about starting a firm. I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm just a real estate guy. And then the thought that came right back at me was, if not you, then who? And I realized in that moment that I had the opportunity to do something meaningful in the space. And if I could show other people, hey, Maybe you don't have to be cutthroat to get ahead. Maybe you don't have to be ruthless to win. The name of my book, right? Maybe it's possible. And, and if I can do it, and I was a ruthless shark, maybe you can do it too. And so I grabbed my pen and or whatever it was, my writing tablet, and started writing down all the things about uh, commercial real estate that I hated. And then I made a list of all the things about commercial real estate that I wished were true. And then out of that list of things I wished were true, we built our 15 core operating principles that we that govern the firm today. And the rest is history, man. I started the firm. It was scary stepping out on my own, not knowing if people were going to think I was nuts and crazy. We were talking love and service on our websites. And it's been this crazy run where I realized that I had tapped into sentiment that was out there and that there was a lot of people that were sick and tired of commercial real estate brokerage as usual. 
And it's been a rocket ship ever since. And it's been an extraordinary experience. It's not been easy, right? Being an entrepreneur is not easy. Starting something from scratch and 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 navigating, but we just celebrated our 11th year. And you know, most 99% of companies don't even, or 98 or something, don't even make it that far, right? So no, I just feel blessed to be a part of it, to be in the game. And uh, I feel like we're just getting started. We have we've never been busier. Business is booming. People really resonate with our message. We get people that want to join us just because of our culture. So everything for us is about culture and it's about staying true to this philosophy of taking really ridiculously good care of people, treating them like family, helping them, going above and beyond for them. And the cool part is back when I was ruthless, I tried to convince everybody that I was a good guy and nobody believed me. Now that I'm not ruthless, I don't even care. And everybody says I'm a nice guy. It's the coolest thing in the world, right? So you can get your cake and eat it too at the end of the day. How did you go about building your staff? Are they a mixture of newbies to the real estate industry, conversions from the old other commercial firms? Great what does it look like? I found, I learned that the hard way, Bill. I thought I was going to be able to do some significant conversions. And what I found that is that people are either willing to do it or they're not. And I got a lot of lip service on the conversions without actual transformative behavior. Uh, so what we typically do and what we did is look for people, A, that are just misaligned with the industry in a whole, right? That aren't happy with the way it is, that are like me, that think maybe there's a better way. And then they hear about us and like, oh my gosh, I got to join you. So we naturally attract those people. And then we have grown a lot of young to mid-tier quality people that we trained the right way from the beginning. But yeah, we're very careful who we bring on. We say no to most people, not in a mean way, just that it's not a fit because um, we're really looking for a special kind of person, someone that really is willing to go above and beyond for others past the rhetoric, past the first three months. It's got to be it's got to be deep in the DNA because if you don't really love helping people, it's hard to keep doing it. It's easy to start it. It's hard to keep doing it when you're not seeing the results, especially because what we're playing, Bill, is the long game. So I'm much less concerned about the short run. I'm always concerned about the long game. So if I'm investing in relationships now, I want them to pay off in 10 years. Most brokers, they're focused on how do I get a deal right now, close it, and move on. That's the hunting mentality. For me, growing people, growing clients, taking really good care of the community that, that we serve and that serve us, creates a really neat sort of ecosystem of service where everybody's helping everybody. Not perfectly, of course, but everybody knows, hey, if you need anything, call JK. Everybody calls me JK. Call JK and he'll help you out. But they don't realize that in return, people are doing that to me constantly. So it's this, it's a give and take. It's a collaboration. It's a mutual giving. And instead of people, everybody trying to take for themselves, people trying to outgive each other, which just is the coolest thing. And the relationships you create and the trust that you engender, it, 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 it's a really a special thing. So how about your international partners? Is How's that vetting process work? Very careful with that. Very careful. But what we make sure that we do, Bill, is we, for any of our clients, we never turn it over. We manage it. So for us, it's imperative cool. that any of our international partners, they're tenant only, that they have the conflict-free platform. But outside of that, are really our focus is we're managing them on behalf of the clients and we're using the people on the ground for their local knowledge 
but we're making sure that we're delivering because I haven't found anybody who delivers a level of service that we do. But I need, I still need boots on the ground, right? People that know the market, know the players and all of that. But then they're just carefully managed by our team. You need somebody to look, at, to look across the street in some town in, in Denmark, if you will. Exactly, exactly. So what's holding you back now? What do you see as your, is the obstacles in front of your vision, if you will, your 10-year vision? I think that one, there's not enough people in the business that really are looking to make a real change. That was a disappointment to me. I thought that there would be more. There's a ton of people outside the industry, but once you get in, it's hard to get out, right? I, I'm actually surprised that I did. So the, the conversion, so, so, so having people that can fold in that are aligned is always a, that's a scale slower, right? Another thing is intentionality around, I'm not trying to be the biggest company in the world, right? We, we really like being sort of the Navy SEALs of commercial real estate tenant brokerage. And so I'm not sure to be candid how big we want to get. We'll be a nine-figure firm someday, but do I want to be a 10-figure firm? Probably not, right? Like, it's just probably not something that, that I have an appetite for. Because I think it, it beca becomes harder and harder to manage the service levels as you scale. So we could still serve hundreds and thousands of clients, but to try to become a 30,000 person behemoth, like some of the big boys, I, I, I just don't, one, I don't think we're going to be able to find the people that are aligned to get there. And two, I'm not sure that, I like operating where I still have a decent idea of what's going on in the company, much less having it just be a big, a big machine. So my next question, you can decline to answer if you like. I'm curious about succession. So do you ever see you yourself being tempted to sell the firm to one of the big guys? Do you have people within the firm that you'd say, hey, I need these people to be my partner one day. Maybe I'll let them buy in. So can you give us a little insight into that? Or is it confidential to the no, partner? No, it's not. We, I, I, have, I have partners. I have limited partners in the firm that are true equity partners, right? So the goal, and a lot of them are younger than me. The goal is for them to assume greater and greater leadership roles, but I don't really plan on retiring. So it'd be like giving up more and more responsibilities while still doing what I enjoy doing the best, which is the client service part and developing relationships. But I also have kids, so you never know. We'll see if any of the kids have any interest, but yeah, I, I, we're not interested in selling. To me, selling would defeat the whole purpose of what we're doing. Um, I guess you never say no to anything, but I, I just don't see the, I, I don't see that being, I've had been approached, as you can imagine, quite a bit. We're very profitable. We, we have a lot of business and there's a lot of interest in it, but I just don't see it. I, I think we continue to pursue our mission, do what we do. And I think a lot of people are so focused on the exit that they miss the ride. It's I'm enjoying the ride. I built this company to make a difference. I don't, taking money and go sitting on a beach doesn't sound that exciting to me. I want to keep making a difference. If I'm good at it, if we have a, a, the right vision, if I have amazing people, I don't know why I'd screw all that up just to take some chips off the table. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So how would uh, our listeners, potential customers, potential employees, potential partners, Jonathan, how would they all, those people get a hold of you and your firm? The easiest is just go to kaiser.com, K-E-Y-S-E-R. Uh, you can reach all of us there. 
My email address is simple. It's jk at kaiser.com. Try to make it as short and sweet as possible. So yeah, whatever, whatever ways we could be of service, we're more than happy to do free reviews for any of your listeners of their leases. Just do a kind of a health check. Hey, does this pass the SNP test? Is there opportunity for cost savings, right? Unrealized cost savings are always the coolest. So yeah, so if there's any way that we could be of service for any of your audience, we'd be delighted to help. Excellent, excellent. I assumed you'd say something like that <laughs> after listening to you, JK. So uh, what is the one question that you're thinking, gee, I wonder if Bill would ask me the following question. So what is that question? What is the answer to the question? A question that would give a lot of value to our listeners. Okay, I'll, I'll pivot because what I get asked a lot is about personal development. So obviously I've gone through an incredible amount of personal development and continue to do so every day. And I am the farthest thing from perfect, but it's a path, right? I'm very, I very strongly believe in the value of personal improvement. I've hired many expensive coaches. I have read every book you can imagine, right? Like I have had this deep hunger for understanding, for getting it, right? I felt like so many people operated with blinders on, not really seeing the big picture. And I would, I didn't want to be that. I feel like that journey for me has is the reason why my life is so delightful and delicious. It's it's the willingness to look yourself in the mirror and say, where do I suck and where can I improve? It's the willingness to say, what's broken and what do I need to do to stretch myself and be better? It's the willingness to set lofty goals for yourself that others think are silly and laugh at you and mock you, right? And it's the discipline of getting up every morning and doing the things that other people aren't willing to do, right? All of that came out of the quest for self-improvement. So what I spend a lot of time with our younger people on is really coaching and encouraging that self-improvement journey because the better that the more that I improve this, for those who are just listening, to, I'm pointing to myself, the more I improve myself, the better I can be at everything, the better I can be at serving people, the better I can be at being a dad, the better I can be at being a leader, the better I can be at making money. Go down the list, whatever it is that you want to be good at. If you work on that and you, you have a mindset of constant self-improvement instead of constant self defense against anybody who might want to criticize you, you really can create some amazing things in your life. And I think I'm the personal example of that. Now I'm just a missionary kid, but I just decided I was going to go figure out how to be better. And so if people listening can go, okay, one, everybody does their own version of that, but lean in, hire a coach, be accountable, stretch yourself. You only got one life. What else are you going to do? Maximize the time that you've been given. And, and, and at the end of your life, look back and go, man, what a ride. I would never want to do all that over again. And I'm exhausted, but wow, I maximized that bad boy. To me, that's the goal versus trying to do as little as possible, like you hear from a lot of people and, and sit around and sloth yourself to death. I just don't feel like that's the right strategy for maximizing your life. That's that's excellent, J.K. I love that. I that that I I reminded me of when you said you're up in Sedona and you said, "If not me, who?" So that's the message you just gave there at the end of the, uh, at the end of the questions I asked you. Exactly so thank right. you. 
So everybody, look, in closing, let's focus on the single fact that our businesses don't become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner first learning and then applying a proven combination of having a visionary strategy, of having a system of management to execute that strategy, and number three, having a high-performance team around you. So you can get that whole formula, just go to getbillsgift.com and get your hands on it. Thanks for listening. Jonathan, thanks for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me, my friend.